Good morning, Talk Radio 930 WTAD. Jack Freiberg's giving me instructions on how to run the Mary Griffith Show, which I always appreciate. Jack, you're going to be taking over this show next month, okay? Well, anything you want, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) We, We were laughing because, Chuck, you weren't here for this, but... Jack came in and closed the door on Quaid and said Quaid was being too noisy. And I was laughing. I was laughing because I thought, who in the world is louder than Jack Freiberg? You know? Good point. Okay. Chuck Schultz is here. We know him. We love him. Oh, by the way, Rich Kane says if he, he keeps getting mistaken for you. So if somebody goes out ever and says, Chuck, I saw you doing something wrong and evil, say it was Rich Kane. Because people are always coming up to him and asking him questions about the city. And he goes, uh, I'm not the mayor. I was sitting Nicole and this nice lady said, oh, I see you on the news. You do a great job down there. I think you're, you're just wonderful. I said, thank you. You really made my day. She said, you know, you're the best guy since Corey McCloskey. <laughs> I love it. Thanks a lot. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, and then we all know Jack Freiberg, who needs no introduction. But here's the new member of our team today, (laughs) Phil Bradshaw. Good morning. Morning. Nice to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know I don't want to hear about the Illinois Soybean Association. Maybe some other day. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's got his Illinois Soybean Association shirt on. But let's talk in... In view of history, tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you to the Mary Griffith Show today, besides an invitation, that is. Well, the invitation is important. <laughs> Why, uh, basically, you know, I, I wrote the book, Your Food, My Adventure, which is basically my memoirs. I've met seven presidents in my lifetime, been appointed to committees and boards by six U.S. secretaries of agriculture. I've chaired three national agriculture organizations, one international organization, given speeches in 53 countries around the world. So I suppose that's kind of the reason Jack suggested I come. I don't know why we're here today, Chuck. <laughs> if you'd bring somebody with some gravitas, you know. <laughs> you have given speeches in 53 count- countries? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm getting ready to go to Poland. What should I see while I'm over well, there? Well, I'll tell you. I, I never gave a speech in Poland. Oh. But I was in Poland when I was going to uh, actually Romania. Okay, so you had to go through Poland to get to Romania. Well, we're not going to Romania, so. But if in case the bus breaks down and we're found there, you can give me some travel tips later on. Uh, Phil Bradshaw, you know, like you said, you've written this book. You have a wealth of history, especially as it relates to agriculture, which everything around here eventually relates to agriculture. So I'm just going to throw it open, and these guys can ask questions too. You know, this is your show. I'm just sitting here, but I'll start it off. Um, you know, we've got some time, so let's delve into this. Uh, talk a little bit about your, your growing up before you got to be this world famous person that went to all these places. Not what, world famous. What, uh, what kind, of, just what kind up. of growing up did you have? Well, I grew up on a large farm. Uh, my grandfather came up here in 1889 from Kentucky and was pretty successful, had 12 children, six boys, six girls, all two years apart. I tell about that in the book. And I grew up on this farm with my dad and my uncles on the farm. Then I went to Western Illinois University, graduated from Western. Then I started farming on my own in 1963, and I farmed ever since. Now my son and grandson farm the farm, and, and I kind of oversee. No, and I don't exactly oversee. Better not say that. They won't like that. I, I kind of visit. I guess that's it. <laughs> you know what? I, I've had some – I've had – my parents came from farming communities. You know, they were both <laughs> raised on farms. And I will say this. 
until the day you die, you're still the CEO. No matter what anybody says, they're not going to do much without running it by pop. So that's part of the weirdness of being in a farming family, isn't it? Yes. Usually when you're in a business, by the time people are 65, they're retiring. So you're like, oh, I've worked at this company all my life. I'm 50 years old, but the big guy's going to head out. I maybe will get promoted, you know, to something. But when you're in a family farm, how old are you, Phil? 85. So my dad's 85, and I'm still the second in command. It's never going to happen for me, but that's part of being a family farmer. Yes, it is. One of the things, you know, <laughs> one of the things that people don't think about is, you know, in agriculture, we accept a lower return on our investment because we are a family farm. We keep it. A lot of people don't realize that we, one of the reasons we have reasonably priced food, and I'm not saying it's cheap, reasonably priced food is, in fact, all farms, family farms especially. They'll keep that farm going if they only make 4% on their money. Where most people say, no, nah, i got to have six or eight. We're going to go someplace else. And they'll That's, just sell. Yeah, they'll sell the farm. I mean, they'll with, sell their factory or they'll sell their mm-hmm. business. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, but I, I look at farming, you know, I, I've always looked at farming because I, I, I do not come from a line of farmers. But I've also look, always looked at farming as, number one, it, it's, it, 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 there is a business element, but it's more importantly, it's a lifestyle. Yes. And with that lifestyle, you know, multiple generations always seem to hug that lifestyle. It's a big deal when the family, multiple, it's been, when it's been a family in multiple generations and nobody takes over the family farm and they liquidate it. That's the end of, of, of a dynasty, so yes, to speak. Yes, it is. And, and, you know, that's one of the things about when, when somebody loses a farm to bankruptcy or something, it's, it's a little harder than it is maybe somebody losing the business in town because that was your grandfather's baby and your father's. They worked all their lives to put that together. And then you, then you messed up and, and made the wrong investment or spent too much money and lost it. So that's really a, a tearjerker for a lot of families. It's personal. It's real Although personal. Although I will say there have been some family-owned businesses in Quincy, and I talked with a gentleman, I won't say his name, but his family business was bought out. It was going under, and so they yes. sold out mm-hmm. to a larger company. It was, And I said, what's that like? And he said, you can't imagine. He said, it's not that I'm embarrassed that we couldn't make it because change, conditions yes. change. He said... It's not that um, I'll be sad that we won't have that family name on our business anymore. It'll be somebody else's name, he said. But I'm so concerned about my employees. Mm -hmm. He said, the new company says they'll take on as many as they can. I'm hoping everyone who wants to stay on will have a job. He said, but that's what keeps me up at night is wondering really what will happen to them now that our family doesn't own the business. So is the Bradshaw family pretty good? Have you got a couple more generations? Yes. Good. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. My, my son's involved with it, and uh, he basically uh, runs the farms. But Then my grandson, who works for Compere, lives here in Quincy, he's got a little farm out in Beverly, and then my, my son takes care of the farming operation. We also finish about 10,000 pigs a year, so he takes care of that business. And he's also on the local bank board that we're involved with. So... so that's one thing about farmers. They have to be involved in their community. Oh, they do. <laughs> so, okay. So you graduate from Western Illinois University. Tell me how you got to be so highfalutin <laughs> on all these bit boards and everything. I know you're a yeah. modest man, but somebody saw something in you. What well, was it that, first of all, you had to take time away from your family business, your family farm, to do all this. So why join all these boards? Why be part of all this? Well, to answer your question, I just showed up. I mean, you know, you'd say all you want to. You know, I'm not a wealthy man. I'm sure not a smart man. I'm not a big man. So what I did is just show up. I tell people every day. I say, just show up. 
You have a great life. Okay, let's let's do this a little bit different way then. <laughs> He's okay? too modest. He's because uh, I, I mean I appreciate your comments about showing up. I feel much the same way because a lot of people don't bother to do that. But tell us a little bit about your relationship with Paul Finley. Yeah, well, I was going to go with that. Paul Finley had a lot to do with my what I've been able to do. Uh, I was at college in Western. I think it was fall '59, I believe it was. And Paul had a it was the first time he was running for Congress. And he had all these signs up all over the campus and everything, going to have this political rally, going to have it up in Sherman Hall in a big auditorium and everything. So I thought, my land, you know, I'm from, I'm from Pike County, I ought to go. I did, of course, I didn't know Paul had. So I went to that, and there was four of us showed up. <laughs> Paul Finley, Don Marshall, who was head of political science department, Don Norton, who went on to be his chief of, Paul Finley's chief of staff, and myself. There was four of us. And I told Paul Finley then, I supported him, helped help him get elected if I could. And... You know, I went to Russia with him, went to China with him, and uh, up until just a year or two before he died, we went down to Columbia, Missouri together. And, but, but a lot of what I've been able to do and opportunities I've had, I met... Just I said, show up. In other words, up. one guy got to be chief of staff. That job yeah. was taken, so you took chief agricultural advisor and travel companion. Yeah. Good job for yeah. you. And, uh, and you know, just went a little, that's where I met George H. Bush. He came into Congress in 72. Paul had been there quite a while. And when George H. come in, he was chair. His seat was not far from Paul. So I was out there one time during the summer, and the Senate was uh, out, you know. But yet they had the, the uh, cafeteria, the restaurant, but the Senate was open. So George H. Bush, Paul Finley, and little old Phil Bradshaw went breakfast over at the Senate restaurant. So that's the way I got to know George H. Bush, you know. So by by showing up, yeah, but, but by up. making yourself available and saying to these people. I like your way of thinking. I want to do more to promote you. And as they ascended, then then you ascended. And it, oh, that's okay. You it might be an important call. No, Maybe somebody no, needs a pig. I just forgot it. <laughs> I just forgot it. Hey, Bradshaw Swine Operation. You'll just have to hold on there. He'll deliver your pig at ten o'clock. He's on the Mary Griffith show right now. I think now. the most amazing thing is that Chuck's and Phil have the same ringtone. Oh, ah, right. ha, 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 ha. part of that secret society. Secret uh, <laughs> society, absolutely. So let's talk um, about why the traveling so much. Were you imparting our knowledge to them, or were you learning from them to make our farming operations better? A little of both. A little because of both. in some countries they can barely hold it together. You yeah. were probably imparting a lot of knowledge. Oh, yes. Well, a lot of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opening up of China, and I'd like to talk about that, and we can talk an hour about China if you want to talk about it. Well, we can't talk for an hour, but we can talk about China, so let's well, do it. Well, I mean, because we yeah. have a weird, what you know, we have a weird relationship with them now. Yes, we do. And, and under Richard Nixon, we started to try to open up and say, look, we're politically not aligned. We have opposite points of view politically, but they eat a lot, and we grow a lot. So mm-hmm. there's a mutual... Especially soybeans. Yeah. Yes, there are... And this man was soybeans, soybeans all yeah. over the world. Yeah. Yep. Well, so, and, and, and uh, I don't know how, you, I mean, how much you're listening to know, but basically it was called ping-pong diplomacy because uh, ping-pong players exchanged. But then it opened up. But the reason that the Shanghai communique was signed February 28, 1972, was China had to have food. And until they opened up to the United States and opened up to the world, they couldn't feed their people. You can talk about everything else you want to. And now, right now, we have the issue with, the, uh, with, with Taiwan and what they're doing there. Now, I maintain, and others agree, some disagree, that mainland China, you know, could run over Taiwan pretty fast militarily. You know why they don't do it? Their food would get shut off. 
and they'd have people starving within months. And I think that's a bigger I think that's a bigger factor than the military. Right. As long as they're afraid of what they'll lose more than yes. what they'll gain. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But they are rat- rattling their sabers a little mm-hmm. bit. Now, this is interesting because soybeans originated in the Oriental or Eastern yes. countries yes. and then were introduced pretty late in the last century, just the last century, to Illinois. Yes. I mean... People didn't grow big soybean farms in 1900 in Illinois. And so you've become on the leading edge of that new crop, because you're old enough to kind of remember when it was kind of novel. And uh, because of that, because we're so good at growing a foodstuff that is universally used, we become the marketplace for the world. Yes, I raised on our farm, we raised our first soybeans in 1963. First year I started farming on my own. Before that, we raised a little bit. Of, my grandfather raised a few soybeans. They used it for hay, but uh, nothing to make you, you know. Talk back then, because mm-hmm. we do a lot of history on this show. In 1963, you're a young farmer, and you're like, I'm going to expand, and I'm not just going to grow soybeans for hay. I think there's a market for this. Take us back to that, because, you know, I was only four years old. I wasn't <laughs> thinking too much about soybeans, Mr. Bradshaw. So take us back to that. How did you? How did that come on your radar screen? Because you eventually became a prominent spokesman for the whole soybean association. But at some point, yeah. you had to be sold on it. Yeah. Well, basically, I believe it was the processing. ADM played a big part of it. You got ADM right here in town. ADM in Decatur. ADM began processing soybean meals along with uh, several others, Cargill and others. We're processing, but they started processing and making many things. Out. When, I, when so, was Quincy Soybean established here, Phil? I can't tell you the year, but I would say probably in the late seventies, mid seventies. I think eighties. Maybe it was eighties for, for ADM Quincy yeah. Soybean. Well, yeah, because Mormon had it. Mormon I mean, had it. Well, Mormon well, had it, and then you know there was that transition. There was to, a there was a family that owned it, but the the name escapes oh, yes, me. That's right, that's right. And then Mormons in turn bought it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were investors here that began it, and what I can't remember is is the is the time frame. Oh, you mean when Quincy Soybean, the original was Quincy Soybean, not ADM Quincy no, Soybean? No, because okay. it was established, a family owned it, and then Mormons bought it, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and then obviously ADM bought it after that. So it's actually gone through what I would consider three generations mm-hmm. of ownership, right, Phil? Yes, I think that's right. And, then, yeah, because I, and so I, they're mm-hmm. building the the infrastructure mm-hmm. to process your mm-hmm. soybeans made more and more people want to yes, grow right. soybeans. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have grown soybeans back in 1963 if you didn't have a place to offload That's them. right. Mm-hmm. You weren't just going to grow them for hay. Right. That's right. But, okay, so you're on so, the cutting edge. You're on the in, in edge of well, all the that. Well, demand, the demand increased. You know, ADM originated in Decatur and stayed there until, what, three years ago when they moved to Chicago. But in and around Decatur, they was raising soybeans in the mid-50s. It was just later that we began to raise them over here. Well, because, you know, as everybody was hearing, you were probably hearing, hey, I can make more money in soybeans right. maybe than corn. Mm-hmm. Is is it always, I mean, I know family farms based on soil and, you know, a lot of different things, but I was just listening this morning to WTAD and our farm report. There's a big discussion, soybeans or corn this spring, soybeans or corn, and a lot of people committed to corn last year, and now they're saying, oh, it'd be better for soybeans. So some of those acres that aren't already committed they're going soybean yes. is it always a tick tock between is it always a teeter-totter between soybeans and corn yes for the most part uh, uh most farmers will be 50 50 now we happen to be because we have a hog operation usually uh hog manure for the fertilizer 
we go about three fourths corn, a fourth soybeans. Okay. But um, so um, so you're on the the cutting edge, or the beginning of soybeans being a marketable commodity, and also starting to make things out of soybeans. Because still to this day, I love what's it called? A mom? What's that soybean stuff called? Edamame. Edamame. Uh, you can't get that. Here we are in the middle of all these fields. And I know Hy-Vee had a salad one time, and I thought, oh, I love this. They're like, you better eat it now, because I don't think it's going to make it through the theater. And old um, Applebee, no, Ruby Tuesdays used to have soybeans on their salad bar. And I love them. But you, know, but you wouldn't pay enough for it. There we go. <laughs> That's hey, probably true. Because you went on the original, on the pretty much at the beginning of, of us making agricultural cells to, to China. China, yes. right. When so we were, yeah, when we were doing, you know, this is back in the early 70s mm-hmm. when that all happened, and we were exporting zero to China at that time. Mm-hmm. In 1972, when Shanghai Communicate was signed, we did very little. Now, the Chinese were getting some of our agriculture products. We were selling them to uh, Canada for one thing and others, and then they were buying them from them. But basically, until 78, we sold them very little. Now, I can tell you why it was 78. In 72, when the Shanghai Communique was signed in February, uh, if you'll remember, we had a little thing called Watergate happen. And then, you know, we had the gang of four take over when Chairman Mao was no, no longer healthy. And Madam Mao, his, his wife, you know, she was pretty ruthless. So George H. Bush became the liaison officer, not a full, not a full ambassador, liaison officer to China. And they had Hyun Su, his name, coming to our country. But we didn't have not have full diplomatic relations until almost 78, after the uh, Watergate thing had settled down a little bit and the Gang of Four had been ousted. So it was 78 before we really ever started opening up. But now they now they purchase, I'm going to say, almost a, almost a fourth of all the beans we produce in the United States. So your affiliation with Paul Finley and going to breakfast with Paul Finley and meeting the future president of the United mm-hmm. States, who was going to be the ambassador to China before yes. he was the president, mm-hmm. that was critical to you getting in on these trips and, and talking. Oh, yeah. So take us inside. Obviously, you're a soybean farmer. You want the highest market for your product. You also, I'm sure, are a humanitarian, don't want people to starve. So how is that negotiation set forth? You know, because... How do you set a price for something like that? Is it market rate? Because China doesn't know anything about market rate. They're a communist oh, country. Oh, yes, they do. Oh, yes, oh, they, yes, they okay, do. Okay, they're, they're, You go back and read about Marco Polo in, in the 12th century, and you'll see some of the same comments, that they, at least what they reported. Now, I'm old, but I'm not that old. But anyway, you'll see some of the comments, you'll see some of the comments that he made her, when he came back from China in the 12th century are very much like we hear today. The Chinese are great bargainers. They they are uh, traders of the, of the greatest, highest degree. So uh, they know our markets probably better than most of us do. Okay. And, and what's the dollar value of our export to, exports of, to China today? Do you remember? No, I don't remember, but it's in the billions. You know, I can't. I can't. Well, say a lot I can. of that bill is going right down the river. Two blocks from here. Yeah. Right? Yes. Oh, yes. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. We're right in the hub and heart of this. Do you? foresee because they're you know like you said now it's not popular to like china you know now they're kind of on our enemies list i mean do you foresee this is going to continue or is there going to be a pullback i hope not and i'll tell you something happened to me a year ago every year we have the commodity classic it's in houston this year it was in uh i think orlando last year 
and we bring our, I say we, I'm no longer on the soybean board. I'm, I'm, you know, the soybean board, the U.S. Soybean Export Council brings a lot of their directors. We've got about 90 directors around the world. We bring them in. And I've been friends with some of those people now for 25, 30 years. And the man from China, uh, he was there, and I've known the man for 25 years. And he says, when is the United States going to attack China? He really believes, and the people who there believe we're going to attack them. And I think that's, uh, I think part of the problem with that is, is that we haven't communicated well with them. We talk about them, but we haven't talked to them. To them. Uh-huh. And I, I think, now I had a man from mainland China come and work on our farm for a year, 19, uh, 19, for 79 to 80, no, 80 to 81. It was 1980 And he was there to learn how you do yeah. things so he could and take I that pr- knowledge. I promoted that. You know, I went over with a group uh, in March of 78, and I was, as in most of these groups, I'm the peon, you know. And uh, so I went, what was I going to do? Well, the California Farm Bureau has a program. They bring farmers together. They send farmers over to other countries, farmers there. So I got with them and helped promote it. We brought 50 Chinese gentlemen over here to live on farms in the United States. Well, one of them got sick and wasn't here. But we had 49 of them in the United States, scattered across the United States, and I had one of those people. And I learned a lot about the Chinese culture. And you have to tell them no on everything. Now, I don't want, I'm dominating this thing too much today. No, no, you're, no, you're, you're the not. guest you're today. You're enjoying it, Phil. We're well, enjoying it. Well, I'll tell you something happened. Then, uh, Yan Sun, we call him Yan Sun. Yan Sun had been over here maybe a month, two months. We went down to the feed store, King Mill at that time. Went in, and they always just have soda sitting out there, you know. And you just get a soda and get it. But it cost, I think, a quarter in those days, maybe, I don't know what it was. But anyway, he just picked up and drank. So I got relieved. I said, Yan Sun, did you pay for that? He says, no. Nobody told me I had to. He said, how much is it? You know, he turned around and was going to pay it. I said, dog, I'll pay it. So I paid a quarter. Whatever. Well, we went back about two weeks later and went down there. Of course, they had candy bars and stuff out there, too, you know. And he picked up a candy bar and started eating, you know. And I said, yes, did you pay for that candy bar? He said, no. Nobody told me I had to. Now, you see how they look at that? Uh-huh. Everything. And I found out if it's over here, at least 49, and I had some meetings with all of them. They all you had to tell them no and everything. They're just going to fight about it once you told them no. They were fine with them, but you had to tell them no. You know, if they can't pick up that paper, they'll pick up this paper. You have to say no to that paper, no to this paper, no to that. And if this candy bar is for both, they'll go down to the next one and the next yeah. one. And you and have to say no to everything. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that was funny to me. Learning the culture, and you know, this is so interesting because so many people are so ignorant. I include myself in that of other cultures all over mm. the world. You've been to fifty-three countries. You've learned you don't accept things with your left hand. You've learned you've learned some things that. Farm boys from this part of the world don't necessarily know. Let mm-hmm. me ask you, and we've got to take a break for the farm markets, mm-hmm. but let me ask you, turning our attention away from China now, because obviously they're a huge trade partner, Russia, what is your take on what Putin is doing? And, I mean, how much pushback are, should we be giving? You know, this bill to help Ukraine is kind of blocked now. They can't get it out of the, the Congress um, several politicians have taken different political views on it. I don't want to get in a political argument, but, you know, is is Putin somebody we can push, and should we push him with food, or how should we push him around? Well, I, I try to stay out of politics, too. I mean, because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much middle of the road, or I think Chuck and these people know I'm middle of the road. Traditionally Republican, but I'm Bill has a great relationship with everybody. Right. Yeah. Both sides of well, well, everybody eats. And that's and right. Everybody eats. Soybeans, too. Everybody <laughs> eats. That's right. Now, if you ask me, why did... Chinese and Russian people eat soybeans. Yes. That's right. And now, so what do you think we should do with Putin? Well, I mean, you know, from mm-hmm. your perspective, I mean, 
how can we push back on him to make just like China? You know, they're not going to invade Taiwan because they want to eat tomorrow, mm-hmm. or at least tomorrow. And this is not tomorrow. true with Russia. Russia can feed itself, but it can't. It can't feed itself in the in the lifestyle that we're used to. You know, they can eat potatoes and that stuff. They can't have the, the the animal proteins like we have. They don't. They can't produce enough on their own. But uh, but they can feed their people, and that's a big difference between it and China. Now I believe that Maine. I don't know, maybe Chuck and Jack will disagree, but I think one of the reasons he went in there, uh, you know, Crimea uh, is the primary food production area of Europe. And that was food, saying, you know, if he gets gets that back under their their hand, they'd have more food and more variety of food, their people would eat better. And I, I think that's part of it. So I think food plays a big part in all these things. You and I agree. You know, you've got to have a reason for taking over a country uh, just besides just, well, I feel like it should be ours. Mm -hmm. And you're right. I mean, it's all interesting. When it comes down to it, we all have to eat. Ukraine is a big... It's the breadbasket, yeah. The breadbasket of Europe. The breadbasket of Europe, I was only only there once, but, uh, uh, I mean, it's, 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 you know, we talk about how great the land is around Champaign, Springfield, around there. Well, they've got a lot of land just as good. And I know that's another thing I like to say. Uh, a lot of people talk about our great land and everything. It's our great society that's made our, us great. The land, we would have made any land with the same kind of society. We'd have made less productive land and still made a great country. It's the people that make a country great. Yeah, I don't know where you're at. It's, it's always about people. Always. And then you mentioned something about using your left hand or your right hand or whatever. You know, a lot of these people talk about that. But, you know, there's only one thing you have to do with people all over the world. You've just got to be kind. You've got you to listen to what they say. And always remember, and I say this to a lot of young groups, always remember you'll never meet a person in your life that don't know something you don't know. And if you think about that a little bit, anytime you meet somebody, they know something you don't know. It's your job to find out what it is. I like that. We'll take a break and head up to the Ursa Farmers Cooperative. Quincy Mack Truck Sales and Service brings you this report. We're back, Talk Radio 930 WTAD. Phil Bradshaw, my guest today, along with Jack Freiberg and Chuck Schultz, but we're letting Phil do most of the talking today because he has an accomplished resume with uh, the Illinois Soybean Association, the National Soybean Association. He has been an ambassador for soybeans around the world, including in China, where he was part of those early trade agreements, thanks to a breakfast with Paul Finley and future Who would have known it at the time, right? Right. President Mm -hmm. George Herbert Walker Bush. So as you go around, you talk about learning. Some people have said one of the things that's a little bit off, and I've talked to you know a lot of farmers around here. I know a lot of farmers who said, we're teaching them down in Brazil how to do everything. We're giving them all of our equipment. We're giving them all our technology. We're teaching them how to do everything. They're going to feed themselves, and what are we going to do? And I think that's come true. Is America always going to be the world breadbasket, or are we going to export our technology or have it stolen by China, and they're going to be able to have the stuff we have? Well, first of all, I think China would not have stolen it if we had told them no. I think we had just told them no and meant it. I, I think we could have avoided that, and I think it was a poor, a poor decision on our political leaders, people, that we didn't just say, no, you're not going to do that. If you do, we're going to do this, but, but that's another side. Now, as far as the... Uh, uh, developing the products around the world. You know, uh, I, I, I went to the UN Compact meetings. I don't know whether people, your listeners know the Compact, but, but uh, Kopiana, when he was Secretary of the UN, 
He, he said in his speech, and I happened to hear him, he was in Chicago, he said in that speech and many times, he said that multinational companies, international companies, have more influence over people than most governments. So he started what they call the compact. It's, it's a private sector of the UN, and I went to some of those. And uh, coming back to what your comment is, uh, I, I think personally that we benefit from everybody's production. First of all, uh, I just don't understand and, uh, why uh, we produce all this food and we still have 15 to 20 percent of the people in the world not attrition. I mean, it's a matter of distribution. So if you can produce it locally, and we've found, and, and the soybean people found, if they start raising soybeans in their country, they normally use more than they raise. So then they buy from us. So actually when they increase it. Now, Brazil is the exception to that. And uh, Brazil is quite an interesting place. I, I spent quite a lot of time in Brazil. Matter of fact, had a pre had a meeting with the president Lula when he was when he was down there. And I kind of become a buddy with the secretary of minister of agriculture down there. So did we mm -hmm. do the wrong thing in teaching them all this, or is I there independence? So. I don't think to so. It? I think first of all, you know, as human beings, we got to make sure people have food. And I think we can be competitive with them. I think uh, I think we are competitive with them. I mean, now when we have low prices, they have low prices. So when it's hard to hard to pay the bills in Brazil, it's hard to pay the bills in the United States. Bill, when when we talk about maintaining our competitive edge, the uh, improvement of the river navigation system, expanding oh, yeah. the lock and dams. Well, they're having that meeting right now with the Port Authority and everything's going on right here at the uh, at the Oakley Lindsay Center. Um, yeah, what what the, Brazil's ahead of us on that, aren't they? No. 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 No, not okay. at all. Not at all. Matter of fact, the biggest problem Brazil's had over the years is transportation. They their roads are not good. Their inland waterways that way, and they virtually have no railroads in Brazil. They have some, but no railroads. This this mighty Mississippi we've got here is a tremendous asset to us. Uh, I was um, well when I was chairman of the U.S. Soybean Board, we uh, we met with the Panama Canal authorities and uh, had a great discussion when they was expanding the Panama Canal and building. Well, they were very concerned, so we signed an MOU with uh, the administrators of the Panama Canal those buildings, that we would continue to promote the Mississippi River, the locks and dams, because that was the bulk, I think something like 60% of the soybeans going through the canal. Well, no more than that going through the canal. Uh, probably 70 or 80% of the soybeans going through the canal come down the Mississippi. And so um, we, we've promoted that all right and wrong. And you're right, Chuck, this Mississippi, I don't think we use it as much as we could. I think we've been negligent for not upgrading. Now they're upgrading, I think, 25 now. And, um, uh, yeah, but and I think Winfield got funded in this infrastructure uh, bill. And, and, you know, I get that. They'll start there and then go to Clarksville and say we're going to get to Quincy. Yeah, but Phil, Phil may not be around by that time. <laughs> I don't think I'll be around by that time. Let's, well, Phil knows all about transportation, and it's it, not just on the river. Yeah, let's talk about AMPS. AMPS, Adam, <laughs> Morgan, Pike, Scott, and... The four got Tony F4. Phil was more than just Pike, but he was right at the nexus, because as you remember, names like Juliet Wade, Judge Hubert Will, uh, federal judge, uh, and the whole holdup on the uh, Valley City Bridges there. I think the key thing on that, uh, Phil, would have been you guys being able to get them to start the road from both ends. Oh, yes. I could, say, I could talk about that one all day, too, Chuck. <laughs> but uh, you are right. It was quite an interesting thing, uh, uh, and I did chair that committee for 11 years. And we haven't bothered the bald eagles at all, have we? There's no. No, they love no. the bridge. They nest on yeah. the bridge. 
Well, that, that, that's that, that, that makes irony, yeah. yeah. Well, we've only got five minutes, so tell your okay. game story. Well, let me just first, I love it. first tell you this. In my book, Your Food, My Adventure, I tell the real reason the bridges were held up and the road was held up. Now, I always liked Jim Thompson. You know, they called us Mutt and Jeff. You know, I'm five foot six. He's six foot six, you know. Vince DiMuzio, a good friend of mine, he'd tease both of me. He'd tease Jim Thompson and me both. But on the Mutt and Jeff, Tim's opening up another section of the highway. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, we had a lot of fun with it. But the real reason that highway was held up, the real reason that uh, Hubert Will, the judge, put the hold on it was two things. And we had our attorneys. Once AMPS, AMPS was started, as Chuck said, Adam, Morgan Pike, Scott County, once we started, we hired a, a law firm, Barry Brown, flat out of Chicago. The first meeting they had in my home, by the way, they come down here, they said, we can't win it. There's no way we win this case because they did not do an environmental study and prove there was no other feasible and prudent place to build the highway than where it is. You have to. There's a law that says you can't take public land if there's any other place to build it. Well, you couldn't go through Valley City. I can tell that story, too. We'll go into it. And the other one was... They used bridge replacement funds, and the state of Illinois was spending $6 million repairing the Florence Bridge. Now, we never tell that because Jim Thompson and all those people are going to have to make the decision what they done. We didn't want them to make them look bad. And, and so we never told that part of the story. But, but we knew 30 days after we organized the AMPS group, we knew we couldn't win the lawsuit. We could not win. So we went to, we went to uh, Bob Michaels then and Paul Finley and um, Senator, uh, boy, I can't think, Burris. I think he was what Burris said. I can't think. Who was senator right there? Probably Alan Dixon. Alan, yeah, yeah, Alan Dixon was or Alan Roland Dixon. Burris, one of those two. Uh, well, the two of them. The two of them. Yeah. Now, now Alan Dixon. But anyway, we went to them, and we got legislation passed to use the funding. They put it through, and Ronald Reagan signed it. But the real reason, I tell this in the book, uh, and it's the first time it's ever been said publicly, I believe, because uh, that was the real reason the highway was held up. It had nothing to do with they, – they, they throwed out everything on the environmental thing right off the bat. The bald eagles we heard all the conversation about, you know, the Indiana bat and all those things. Judge Will throws those right out. But once we got an attorney in there and pointed out the thing, that he dismissed all those. But those two, we couldn't win. You couldn't rebuild, rebuild the Florence Bridge, put $6 million on it, say it was a bridge replacement. And you couldn't go through that area unless you had done the study to prove there was no other place to build it. So you just started and built towards the middle, and then it became inevitable that that was the only yes. place it could be built? Yeah. Well, that's not, Boy, you're not quite right, though. Not quite right. <laughs> not quite right. Okay. We, we, we started, as Chuck said, we got Jim Thompson to start building from Hannibal back and over that way. But we did not go far enough of what they could have alternated the route. So in case we didn't get the funding changed, get it worked out, we could have gone one way or the other. What was your relationship with those two sisters? Weren't those two sisters the ones that... Well, it was a sister and a brother. Sister and a brother, okay. Well, I had, I had a pretty good relationship with them. I, I, um, they were environmentalists from day one, uh, but I don't think they really realized what they were doing. It was um, uh, uh, Mr. Ader who took that case on with there. He was just a, a brilliant attorney out of Chicago. He knew he could win because he knew those two things. Well, he added all these other things in to make it more flamboyant you know, and all that. But uh, but, he, bill a little but, bit. but we the taxpayers <laughs> we we the taxpayers wound up paying him about four hundred thousand dollars because when we lost the lawsuit the government had to pay him I think it was close to four hundred thousand. But progress remains and that's been a well, big. Well now that's advocate. Interstate seventy. Yeah now it's Interstate seventy two. With the uh, Avenue of the Saints and uh, now we've got uh, Tom Oakley's Chicago Kansas City route in place. So mm -hmm. yeah I know it was a lot of years in effort, Bill, but. Uh, 
Uh, we see the benefit now. Well, I guess, Bill Bradshaw, we only have about two or three minutes left, so I want to kind of close with this because you're such an elder statesman, <laughs> and uh, we've just brushed on it. See, you, I'm, you're so far before my time, even though you're not that much older than me. I, I was oblivious when I was young of all, you know, I mean, I, were, you know, I want to know, because you said you just showed up, okay, but what advice do you have for the young people today? who are young like you are, uh, that say, we'll never get a road, we'll never get the Mississippi River fixed, we'll never find another crop, we'll never explore anything new. Well, you know, all this is just, it's too much. What do they have to do to make it happen? Well, I talked to the uh, University of Illinois Young Leaders Foundation group uh, just a month ago or so, and I've been telling all young groups the same thing. One thing you got to do to have an enjoyable life and be very productive and be very beneficial to your fellow man is show up. You know, show up. And the other one is, do what you say you will do. If you say you'll be someplace at 8 o'clock in the morning, you be there at 8 o'clock in the morning. If you say you'll go talk to somebody, go talk to them. You know, do what you say you'll do and show up. And get involved in these causes. Mm -hmm. Because these young leaders from the University of Illinois, they cannot just ride on what the Soybean Association did for them since 1963 Mm -hmm. or whatever. They've got to make it happen in 2024. Four and 2064. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things I wanted to mention here, you know, the American farmer right now, and I've got the papers out here, we're contributing through our checkoffs. Every time we sell a commodity, we take a little money out, pool it together. It's now a figure, that figure is now $1.3 billion that the U.S. farmers are putting up to promote their products, improve the production of their products, improve transportation. So we, we, nobody, there's nobody in the developed world that don't benefit from commodity checkoff programs. So don't rely on somebody else to do it. You farmers get together and do do it it yourselves. Okay. Bill Bradshaw, so great to have you on the Mary Griffiths Show. Please come again. And Jack and Chuck, thank you. And Chuck, Five to seven tonight at the History Museum, the uh, Prohibition. And, the Prohibition Party, yeah. Roaring Twenties. The other thing was the enormous success of the public hearing on the Cubera project last night. The you guys packed it up. 50 people showed packed up. Packed it up. The largest group they'd ever had. Well, the average. The previous meeting was 80. The, exactly. We did 350. This yeah, because the number, last number I heard nervous. today was 475. Wow. You know, so yeah, it was packed. I it, mean, was I a, it was in it. Yeah. yeah, well, it, there's. I mean, there was. It was an enormous success, and they went ahead and talked an awful lot about the project, answered good questions. I thought. I thought they hit it out of the ballpark. Okay, we are done for the day and for the week. Drive safely, folks. And once again, the third Friday of every month, Schultz and Freiburg. They don't need me, but I'll stick around, I guess, just because. What else do I have to do?